Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Guerra, and in today's episode, we're asking what actually is financial inclusion? It's a term often used alongside underbanked and unbanked, which has become a catch-all for financial services looking to engage with communities and markets which have not been traditionally connected to the financial grid. But while much good has been done under the umbrella of financial inclusion, is it time to rethink this term? Is it helpful? And should we be pushing people towards banking systems which weren't designed for them? We'll discuss this and more in today's show, but first, a brief word from our sponsors. Full Circle is the customer lifecycle intelligence platform that's helping companies in financially regulated industries do better business faster. Financial institutions are under pressure on multiple fronts. Customers are demanding better experiences, competitors are making a grab for market share, regulatory scrutiny is fiercer than ever, and the cost to acquire and serve is high. Full Circle's new white paper explores how customer lifecycle intelligence can help companies find the right customers, accelerate onboarding, and keep them for life. Download it from the link in the podcast description. Let's get started. As always, I'm joined by a panel of amazing guests who can shed some light on this topic. So first off, we've got a welcome return to Fintech Insider from Bruno Diniz, the co-founder of Spiralem. Bruno, welcome back to the show. Can you introduce our audience to you and those who may not know Spiralem? Yeah, definitely. So Guerra and, and team, uh, welcome. It's, it's a pleasure to be back here and, uh, and to, to have this conversation with you guys. Uh, well, I'm Bruno Geniz. I'm a consultant, a professor in an altar. Uh, basically, I have a company called Spiralin, and we are a, a consultancy firm focused on innovation for corporates and also for governmental bodies like uh, from various countries. So basically, that's what I do. And we're trying to uh, foster innovation in the region and not only Latin America, but beyond. That's awesome. And we've also got a welcome return from Diana Yermolayeva, the CEO and co-founder of GPay. Welcome back, Diana. Uh, what should our audience know about, about you and GPay? Hi, um, thanks for having me again. Yeah, so um, GPay is my company and uh, we're an app providing financial services to um, migrant domestic helpers in Singapore and soon beyond. Uh, so I've been on the podcast before, but I guess since I've uh, been away, we launched a whole new uh, feature for uh, domestic workers, including remittances and a savings product. Uh, so I guess those are the updates. That's awesome. Uh, we've got a FinTech Insider debut from Sunainar Kumar, Senior Fellow at an Observer Research Foundation. Thanks for joining us. Uh, what can you tell us about yourself and the Observer Research Foundation? Hi, Guerra, and I'm thrilled to make my debut in Fintech Insider. Uh, a bit about myself, my name is Sunaina, and uh, I'm joining from Delhi, and I work as a senior fellow with the Observer Research Foundation. I'm a journalist, and uh, I have reported on development, on gender, and on social issues. And uh, the Observer Research Foundation is the largest think tank in India. And the work that I do is um, based out of the Center for New Economic Diplomacy, where we look at topics of development uh, like health and gender and climate. And we look at how India can work with other developing countries in Asia and Africa and how we can learn from each other. And my work is primarily on gender and now quite focused on financial and digital inclusion of women. 
That's awesome. All right, we've got such a, a phenomenal panel in front of us. So let's uh, let's dive right in. So let's start by kind of looking at defining the term and what what financial inclusion means today. So as a quick fire start, can each of you give me your best one sentence definition of financial inclusion? Uh, we'll start with uh, Sunina. So uh, in a single sentence, I'll try. It is the bedrock for inclusive development. Uh, it ensures access to financial services for the underprivileged and for the vulnerable population. In India, those could be people who are living under the poverty line, or they could be people living in villages far removed from a bank branch. Brilliant. Diana? I guess financial inclusion is pretty much what are the financial services available to you? Um, do they fulfill your needs? And at what price? Brilliant. Bruno? Yeah, yeah. I, I in, in my first book, I, I wrote about this a little bit, and I think that could be a, a very good topic to explore here. <clears throat> but I would say in my book, I, I, I told that, uh, in- inclusion happens when someone can access a range of financial products or services in a affordable and frictionless way, uh, clearly understanding it, its aspects and impacts, using it as a mean to improve their quality of life. So th- that would be like a long sentence, but but the one I think it would be the best one for, for, for myself. That's say. great. Let's let's keep with you here, Bruno, because um, you, you're in Latin America. You're dialing in from Brazil. Brazil, one of the largest, most populous countries on the planet. Um, you know, Brazil has basically been the blueprint for what successful financial inclusion looks like. Um, Nubank, you know, has nearly 54 million customers across LATAM. They are a fintech darling. Um, according to Nubank, 20% of their customers had never had a credit card or a bank account before, They were and they were completely excluded from the system. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what, what's the difference, what's the push been like in the last 15, 20 years in, in Brazil and LATAM in general uh, with regards to financial inclusion? Definitely, yeah. Uh, I would say that here in Brazil, there was some types of initiatives here. One was made in 2008 by, by, by the central bank, which created a, a law to obligate the banks to create like a minimum service account. Uh, this minimum service account would be, uh, you, you know, the citizens would uh, have access to a debit card, uh, the, the, the right to, to have like two bank statements per month. Uh, 10 uh, sheets of, of paper, check, uh, and, and, and things like that. So uh, it was like a, an effort for by the, the central bank to try to, to get the traditional banks, because back then in 2008, we didn't have that much fintech activity in the country. But uh, the fintech journey here, I think that we see the, a very big, big push on 2013, where the central bank created some specific laws trying to foster fintechs here, uh, but I would say that the, one of the last pieces that was like very important for this journey was PIX and our uh, instant uh, instant payment system in Brazil. So uh, the, the big thing here is about interoperability, because back in the days, like prior to 2020, when it was established, uh, you know, banks would charge something around three dollars, three U.S. dollars, for someone to send money to another person. So, that's in a country like Brazil, it's 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 a high high cost. Uh, and with Pix, we have interoperability. So we have a case which we have P2P payments. Uh, people uh, are not charged for P2P payments, and you can send money from a fintech to a bank, from a bank to another bank, from a bank back to a fintech. Uh, it, it, it works like different ways. So that was a very important component, not only the fintech revolution, also the embedded finance movement, but also an infrastructure, you know, chain, infrastructural change in the country that helped in the, in the whole process. 
That's that's great. I mean, you, you've you've touched on regulation being a major driver in Brazil with PICS, and and we understand PICS. You know, uh, more than half of Brazil's population uses it. That just goes to show how quickly adoption can spread. Let's let's shift gears a little bit and and come to Senena. Um, you've you've looked at financial access for women in India in recent articles you've written. Um, what does financial inclusion mean in that context? So, but before we, we, we answer that, I, I want to just like give a bit of uh, some some data. About fifty percent, fifty eight percent of female entrepreneurs in India who start businesses between the ages of twenty and thirty rely on self financing, so largely savings, inherited assets, or physical property that can be mortgaged. Um, that that's clearly not super inclusive, right? When it comes to you know entrepreneurship, but can you give us a little bit of context about what financial, what financial inclusion looks like with the added intersectional like lens of gender? Sure. And uh, in fact, I would add another lens to it and also look at digital inclusion because that also is an issue in India. So uh, in the center um, where I work, we look at the gender gap in digital financial inclusion and how uh, how DFI can actually contribute to increasing women's presence in the workforce, which, of course, is a big issue in India, considering the low rates of participation of women in work. So I'll break it up quickly and look at the gaps. Uh, the, the digital gap is is actually quite surprising. We don't have it in China. We don't have it in Brazil. We have it in India. Uh, we have data that, that says that women are 15% less likely to own a mobile phone and 33% less likely to use mobile internet. And there are various reasons uh, for this. It could be affordability. Of course, it is social norms where women are expected to give time to their families or they don't have the freedom to use their devices or access internet. When we look at financial inclusion gaps um, after India, after China, India has the largest population of unbanked individuals. And this is data from 2017 uh, by the World Bank. Uh, in the last um, five years since that data has been collected, there's actually been a lot of work that has happened in India uh, on financial inclusion, driven primarily by government policy. So we have data from 2021 that shows about uh, 80% of women have bank accounts in rural India, and the figure for men is about 88%. So there's a vast improvement, but there's still a long way to go. Uh, the other factor that we find in India when we look at uh, this topic is that access to a bank account does not necessarily mean that the task of financial inclusion has been completed. Uh, many of these women do not use their accounts or they lack financial literacy uh, or they do not have access to credit. Um, as the data that you just quoted showed that there are social biases, lack of collaterals, women entre entrepreneurs cannot get credit. So um, finally, uh, when we combine digital and financial inclusion, we look at the role that technology can play in financial inclusion, especially for women. That's that's great. I think technology, you're right. I think adding that additional lens adds a little bit more clarity to, to giving us a fuller picture. But um, let's let's talk to Diana, the founder of an app, um, where financial inclusion is a big part of the messaging. So in, in Singapore, approximately a third of Singapore's active labor force is non-residents, so meaning that they're neither Singapore citizens or permanent residents. And historically, migrant workers have had very little access to financial services, uh, with the majority of them being underbanked and rely on black market providers, uh, which specifically target migrants or short term uh, for, for short term loans and, and um, remittances, as well as, you know, quite predatory practices. What does this mean for the Singaporean? Like, can you give us a bit of on the ground understanding of what this means for the Singaporean market? And what is GPay doing uh, to, to address this? Absolutely. So like you correctly pointed out, a huge 
part of the population here in Singapore is migrant. Of course, there are different types of migrants. Um, so some people are wealthier, more educated expats who come here and are also counted towards that population. But the vast majority of it is um, either foreign domestic helpers, which is um, who we serve at GPay, or they might be men who are part of the construction marine and processing sector. Um, the helpers are all women. So I guess what that means for the Singapore market is that the need that we are addressing at GPay is incredibly pressing. And it's not an issue that is isolated just to the foreign worker population. So with the example of foreign domestic helpers, one in five households in Singapore has a helper. And so those financial issues or the lack of financial inclusion that the helpers face actually cause issues for their employer. So an example of that is if a helper is unbanked, then um, her employer, like the family where she works, has to pay her in cash. And that causes all sorts of issues like salary withholding or claims of salary withholding and so on and so forth. Much like what Sunaina said, um, we also have the problem of these people having bank accounts, but not really being able to use their bank accounts. And we see that firsthand. Often a helper will have a bank account, but she won't have the digital token required to authenticate into the app, you know, or the bank's customer support lines will be closed on the weekend. Or for example, all the main banks here in Singapore are not able to remit funds between 2 p.m. on a Friday and like Monday morning. But the only day off that helpers have is a Sunday. So they're pretty much forced to go to these physical cash remittance points, which charge them kind of extortionate fees. So I guess what we're trying to do at GPay is not just be another remittance app, but really provide financial services, which these people can make use of and which make their lives easier, but also the lives of all the stakeholders around this problem, such as their employers. I, I think that's that's really great uh, to, first of all, congrats on, on all the work you do with GPay. I think um, it's good. I like that you pointed out that a lot of the migrant workers who are doing domestic care tend to be women, right? So again, like back to the the gender lens. Bruno, I'm going to come to you. It seems like from Sunaina and Diana, we've, we've heard a bit of a thread about, um, you know, digital financial inclusion um, and inclusion into, into the digital sphere. With all this, all the success we've seen from Nubank and other fintechs, are people actually using these services? Like uh, Diana and Sunaina have mentioned that you know, even though they do have access, um, they're not being used or leveraged to their full potential. Is this something you see as well in Brazil? Yeah, definitely. When you look back and uh, when when we only had the, the the possibilities of consuming financial services with banks, uh, that was a, a real pain here, a, a real problem. Uh, and and in, in fact, in Brazil, uh, after you know the fintechs came and brought like a new type of. Uh, user experience and uh, a new way for people and really addressing some of the pain points that uh, the banks couldn't uh, help, I think was a transformational change. But I would say that it's just like just like what Sinaya said, it's not only having a banking account, it's, it's, it's about the whole experience we have, we have with that, that is the access to credit products in all types of, of products. And, and in, that, in that specific sense, I think that first the fintechs came and then we have like a we open like alternatives, okay? But I think that the the other piece that we have, uh, which I, I wrote about that in my la my latest book, which is called the New Financial Logic, it's not yet translated, but is that we have now a whole range of uh, embedded finance providers. So we have retailers, we have like so it brought us a lot in terms of uh, access for 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 people, uh, and in 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 a different ways to 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 have those products. 
also in an uh, offline way because some retailers we have like cash in cash out points and we have things like that and it's a very different environment compared to what we see uh, in the banks which tend to be very oppressive one here in Brazil we have like the uh, revolving doors with uh, metal detectors on it uh, which is something that tends to push uh, you know people away from 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 the the traditional financial institution so um i think that's the embedded finance component so we're not talking about a, a fintech neither a bank but it's like a different a, a, you know, brand new providers in the space that are making a lot of difference in the country that's great i think i want to put a pin in that embedded finance piece because i want to come to it toward the end when we look at the future because i truly yeah, i believe that you know embedded finance fintech that is that is being built by you know service providers who understand their their end user needs is really what's going to drive a lot of uh, inclusion and, and I guess the future. So let's let's uh, let's let's move on um, to the next next segment. Really, just looking at should we continue to use this term financial inclusion? Um, does it does it really make sense? Is is there a case for scrapping the term entirely? So if we look back to an episode that we did, uh, episode six ten, we had Mpesa's CEO Sitoyo Lopokoit on the show. Uh, he's he's based in Kenya. You know, very famous Mpesa being you know again a poster child for financially inclusive fintech. So he described the product ha- having shifted gears in the last uh, you know couple years, um, having been founded in two thousand and seven. It was initially designed to drive financial inclusion. So Kenya at that time was at 23% uh, of, of the po- population was financially included. It is not, Kenya is currently now at an 80%, 87% mark of financial inclusion. So Satoria, the CEO, talked about how they went from their humble the beginnings of, of driving financial inclusion, and they've now shifted to financial health. And what that looks like is is the, the product itself went from be, being a send money proposition to, you know, a payments proposition. So now, you know, businesses using it, um, people using it to interact uh, in commerce. Uh, and now they're moving into, shifting into a lifestyle proposition. So like financial health versus financial inclusion. Do we think that, that so with that in mind um, and seeing, you know, w- one of the most famous stories of, of a financial inclusion fintech, um, do we think that financial inclusion as a term is too general considering how many aspects it covers? Uh, Sunaina, let's start with you. So I actually love the work that has happened in Kenya on financial inclusion, but uh, I I really like the term financial inclusion uh, because, um, uh, as I was even saying earlier, I feel like getting access to bank accounts is less than half the job done. There is so much more that needs to happen for true inclusion. And uh, for that, financial inclusion remains a goal. It remains a goal for policymakers, for governments, for the private sector, for uh, for formal finance, for fintech. And uh, I like the term because it's adequate. I think it's accurate, and it's 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 based on the principle of inclusivity. So, Nana, does that mean so? Like, okay, if we look at yes, financial inclusion, but it, it, does the term shift as a population? Um, I guess evolves or or you know how do, how do you see that shift? Um, like I'm and I'm I'm also calling back to what Satoya said about uh, fa- financial inclusion to financial health. Do you think that that term is is static or like financial inclusion or or does it does it shift over time? So I think that we build layers on it. Uh, once we have uh, once we've connected those who have not had access. Uh, to to financial services, we add uh, we add perhaps um, layers of social security. We add insurance. We add access to pension. 
uh, everything that brings the marginalized out of their disadvantaged position. That's how I see it shifting. But I'm an advocate for the term financial inclusion. I would I would conclude with that. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, in uh, in our recent After Dark podcast, we we spoke about financial inclusion being tied into issues of surveillance in some countries and areas. Um, so you know, the distrust of banks in Nigeria, you know, uh, the Sustainable and Inclusive Digital Financial Services Initiative wrote that past experience is one of the most important considerations when it comes to trust. So a bad experience with a bank will impact a customer's willingness to engage with the institution and its products uh, in the future. In Nigeria specifically, um, and this, I think this could be said for a lot of other countries, people don't just don't trust banks. Even banked individuals regularly exp- express displeasure with their financial services. You know, to give context, Kenya, you know, I'm from East Africa. In Kenya, there's currently, you know, a, a shortage of, of U.S. dollars. Th- there's there's a lot of uh, distrust of, of banks changing and, and shifting gears uh, in terms of, of, of how they interact with with um with the public, Bruno, I'm I'm going to come to you. What is what is the sentiment um around financial inclusion and and, and the trust factor uh, with banks and fintechs? What what is what is the temperature right now in in Brazil? Yeah, the the the, the trust component between banks and 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 people in Brazil and consumers, I think it's been shaking for a long time. <laughs> One of the aspects of that is, I think, the symbol of that is just like the revolving doors with the metal detectors on it. That that's a, a symbol of how hard it is, how it oppressive is the the, the banking environment in the country. Uh, and and okay, I, I know it's for security reasons, but uh, there's a there's an interesting thing. Even New Bank New Bank made an an, an exhibition at a museum with a, a door like this, with a revolving doors, with metal detectors. Uh, saying that is like a, a, something from the past. So in, in a museum, that was a very interesting thing because that's the whole uh, pitch about New Bank giving access without the hurdles of, you know, uh, trying to, to have access. Um, and I still perceive that people, and when you, when you go, go to the countryside in Brazil, we see a lot of people that are simple people that really hate and really are like, uh, not comfortable in a banking environment. And that's one of the reasons I, I would say again that, uh, when you, when you, when you bring retailers, for example, and some of the retailers where people have lots of their day to day shops, uh, and they started providing financial services and good financial services, uh, I think that that's a game changer because in those places, in those different uh, retail shops, they feel at home. Uh, they know the the the, the guy that the, the, the tellers. They they know everyone. Uh, so that's a really uh, uh, makes a lot of difference in terms of this component of trust because they're coming, they're consuming something, products and services, financial products and services from someone that they really know and and that and the, from people that know themselves. So that that that's that changed the game for sure. Yeah, I I think that um definitely like trust is such a intangible thing and it's it's also so it's so hard to 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 do do well and do right. Diana, with already vulnerable population of of migrants in Singapore, I imagine that that it, it's difficult for them to even just be included uh, or or to engage in the financial system. So, how do you guys at GPay approach the concept of trust, and what has shaken that trust in the past or locked migrant workers out of um, engaging with the financial system previously? 
Absolutely. Um, I think what you said about Nigeria, where people kind of don't trust banks, um, that very much is the case for the domestic worker population in Southeast Asia. Number one, that stems from a longstanding history of banks being relatively predatory towards migrant workers. Um, so to this day, um, even the big sort of like normal Singaporean banks have minimum deposit requirements and they'll charge minimum fees if your deposit isn't above sort of X which uh, is relatively prohibitive towards these workers. But they don't not trust banks. They just don't trust that the banks will be transparent about their policies, um, which is the bigger problem. Uh, Who the workers don't trust is usually um, other types of financial services providers, such as loan sharks or such as these kind of like sharky remittance shops. So in Singapore, um, it's not actually permitted to lend more than 500 SGD uh, unsecured to a migrant worker. Um, but a lot of these remittance shops will lend them far, not remittance shops, sorry, loan sharks will uh, lend them far more money um, and sort of get these helpers to sort of lend money to each other to like fake guarantee each other's loans. And then they all end up in debt. So I think that tends to be the bigger issue. Um, and what we try to do is we try to show the workers that we have actually built this product for them. So it's not like they are these outsiders trying to latch on and use this ecosystem, which was built for somebody else, but actually this is exactly for them. So um, some examples of that from our actual product is we do um, customer support on WhatsApp. You know, we don't have some kind of like fancy Zendesk portal, which they can't access by email, um, but actually they can just WhatsApp us and send us a screenshot of what's going on and we will help them in real time. So that's kind of, I guess, one example of it. Um, The app is, you know, easily accessible, free to download. We're currently translating the app into Tagalog, Bahasa, and um, in the future, other languages. So we really try to go by that idea of being, yeah, like a lifestyle product um, and being their friend almost, rather than this kind of scary financial institution, which speaks a foreign language. Right. And, you know, back to the trust thing and and things being built for purpose, I I think I want to just shed some light real quick on, um, you know, where this mistrust may come from and even even in the digital age. And and Sunaina, I'm curious to get your thoughts. But, uh, for example, in China, we're hearing about, you know, this this social financial score um, that, you know, is tallying people's behavior that could, you know, the ramifications could be locking people out of, uh, you know, financial services, being able to even get a train ticket. Um, in the Emirates, uh, United Arab Emirates says there's there's a, a, a universal like a payment ID, I think, uh, that's coming, that's, you know, that's come out already. Um, financial, these are all tools of financial inclusion. And I think that there's some good that can come out of this. So for example, like, you know, as a product manager, I'm always thinking of like, how can we leverage something to to do good, like the disbursements of relief funds, you know, like if say, for example, everyone, the government was able to disperse funds to people in times of, of difficulty, uh, that could be good. But can you can you shed some light, Sunaina, on on what kinds of nuanced ways you approach uh, this, this concept of, of financial inclusion um, in the Global South specifically? So uh, if it's in the context of uh, of trust and also what we're seeing in China, we also have uh, in India an instance of the government allegedly spying on citizens using the Israeli spyware. And uh, the threat of surveillance uh, in the name of modern governance is is very legitimate and very real uh, and and you know every government needs to collect information on citizens um, a government that is building digital stacks as we are in india to effectively also target policies whether that's welfare as you said infrastructure healthcare uh, so there is no doubt that we need technology for efficiency the conversation that we're having in india right now is 
uh, is also how we need checks and balances and we need audits of the system uh, so that it is not misused. Um, in the last month, for that matter, there's been there's been a big debate on how there have been data breaches involved because uh, around Aadhaar, which is the, the digital identity system that we have in India, which is a unique digital I- identity, which is used to disperse all welfare schemes, which is also used, uh, which is connected to mobile phones and bank accounts, which we use for payment systems. Uh, basically, the entire... Uh, digital public goods are built on Aadhaar and the government itself issued an advisory a few weeks ago uh, saying that citizens should be careful about sharing photocopies of their uh, Aadhaar identities, their numbers, because there could be security breaches, which they finally withdrew. Uh, and what that left us with is this uncomfortable space where, um, you know, where we're having these conversations. Uh, we're also looking at how legislation on privacy and security can keep pace as digital technology is taking over our lives. And I, I don't know what the answer to that is, but uh, those are the questions. I think, you know, we, I was going to do a quick uh, quick voting on, on whether we keep or scrap the term uh, financial inclusion, but it seems there's just so much nuance. And I really like, Sunaina, what you've said about this concept of, of introducing checks and balances and, and having the public be, you know, hold hold their, their uh, governing bodies accountable, um, you know, especially when it comes to not only privacy, but also security, right, um, from, from all these breaches. All right, so let's, we're going to take a quick pause. Um, we, we could talk about this for so long, but uh, we'll be back very shortly. Here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or somebody you know are up for a challenge and fancy working for one of Flex's most flexible companies, come check out our open roles. We have roles in growth, product, sales, talent, and more. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. That's 11fs.com forward slash careers. And we're back. Okay, let's look at what the future might hold when it comes to financial inclusion and what we hope the future could be. So as as a, you know, definitely a crypto nerd and, um, you know, crypto bit of a degen myself, uh, is, is there a case for DeFi inclusion instead of financial inclusion? So incumbent banks historically have excluded individuals who are credit invisible or lack collateral of their own. Um, this is where, you know, me and my degen like self, uh, crypto nerd self, uh, I, I see a lot of hope. Like, so DeFi liquidity protocols use crypto as collateral to provide credit to consumers, and then, and in turn, they cut out the traditional banking middlemen. So, Bruno, could DeFi eventually offer financial services without the baggage? Are we are we seeing this start to happen in in Brazil or around the world? What are you seeing uh, in your work? Nice, nice. Not, not. I think in Brazil, not that much, but. When you see other countries out of necessity, they have, we have cases like this, like Argentina, we have a 50% inflation uh, process going on there. So uh, in this sense, I believe that uh, many of the DeFi protocols are you know, getting traction. Um, but I pretty much believe that uh, when you look at DeFi, there's a lot of work to be done in terms of uh, improving user experience and things like that. What I see also are companies that got like decentralized finance in their back, uh, in their front, they are like, uh, you know, they try to appear like traditional, uh, you know, 
alternatives, like easy to, to access alternatives. I think we, we, we came a long way, way in terms of uh, offering, um, you know, products and services in a, in, a, in a very good way. And I think FinTechs uh, got a, a playbook on that. But, uh, but I think there's a lot to be done in terms of uh, experience, uh, but, but definitely. But I think that's a really interesting possibility for people to ac access uh, different liquidity pools from, from, from around the world that could solve like lots of problems when you, when you look at the, the pricing component and the, the, the ease of access and, and things like that. But, uh, but there are some steps to, 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 to take I 100% agree. You've touched upon something that we talk about a lot at 11FS. Um, and uh, if anyone is interested in learning more about blockchain, check out the Blockchain Insider podcast. But we talk a lot about this concept of the DeFi mullet, which is, you know, the, after the haircut, which, you know, the, the, the haircut is business in the front, party in the back. Um, whereas the DeFi mullet is is fintech in the front, but DeFi powering the back. So, um this con you know these complicated concepts of liquidity pools and staking and and uh, you know all the all the stuff that goes on in the DGen uh, Discord channels um, is is abstracted uh, to be powered by a front end that is understandable. So using fintech and um, we've seen businesses in like a Nigerian uh, fintech that's actually using um, DeFi protocols to generate yield for their customers, but on the front end of it, their customers are just seeing a savings account. Um, and I, I think that that's really where the, the future of, uh, of, I guess, you know, crypto-led financial inclusion um, will, will come from. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to, let's, let's, and, yep. And, and another thing where I, I believe that, you know, for us to get past this, the geek uh, vocabulary on that and, and really um, include people out of these possibilities that we can take from uh, from DeFi, we really need to, to improve it, this, this component. So that, that, that's, that's an interesting point. And I, I, I love the definition you guys have. So that's, that's another point. Well, we, we didn't coin it. It was coined by the guys at Bankless, uh, but uh, it's definitely, it's, it's <laughs> gone viral. Um, all right. So let's, let's, uh, let's move away from, from DeFi. Um, how far do you think we are uh, on the journey to full financial inclusion, uh, Diana? Um, do, do, do you feel like this is possible? What, what remains the biggest pain point for people getting connected and what future do you see, Diana? I think we will always be on a journey to financial inclusion because once you include a certain demographic, like in my case, foreign domestic workers, there will always emerge another demographic that, you know, a certain segment of the workforce that didn't previously exist because a new industry has been created or so on and so forth. Um, so I feel like we'll never like 100% get there. But I think one of the biggest pain points, at least again in my industry, uh, for the people who are connected is kind of spreading that connectedness to, let's say, their dependents who are still overseas. So, for example, with the um, domestic workers, a lot of them do have bank accounts. A lot of them are starting to use uh, more affordable remittance services or save money or borrow you know, from better lenders. But the people who are not uh, benefiting from those services are potentially their families back home, their parents or their children. And that remains a big strain um, on these workers because they're providing funds for four to five dependents back home, these people keep asking them for money because they don't necessarily know how to budget effectively and they don't necessarily understand how to uh, spend money in the most sort of efficient ways possible. And I think very soon the conversation is going to shift to, you know, how can these breadwinners who have recently been included in the financial system uh, now spread that across to uh, whoever it is, the older generation or, you know, the most importantly, the younger generation where they come from. Let's look at let's turn on the intersectional lens again um, and look at the fact that, you know, like 
it's it's not all, like in financial inclusion and the past, present, and future of it is is not really going to be quite equal. Um, so the Bank of International Settlements found that while 29% of men use fintech products and services, only 21% of women do. So, um, which even I reckon with more research, I would say that that number might be lower. So, Naina, which groups and communities or, or regions would benefit most? For for more uh, catered for financial services, like which which what what do you see as the future of of um the where the most impact could be could be could be done? So uh, since my uh, focus is pretty much on women, uh, I I would look at that and I would look at how um and again I would I would pick on India because that's that's what I know. Uh, but when we look at financial inclusion, uh, we've had, uh, though we've made great strides, I think uh, what's happened is that there's been a blanket approach. And gender, the same lens can be applied to other other sort of communities that are excluded, right? So what we know is, poli- what we need is policy making, which at least for women needs to be gender sensitive in its design. So, um, I, and I can give an example for that. So um, uh, one of the priorities um, for financial inclusion has been uh, to build a strong network of banking correspondents in rural India. And uh, those are people who are employed for last mile delivery in remote villages where there are no physical banks. And uh, while there is a huge network of banking correspondents in India, uh, there just aren't enough women. And there is a lot of research, um, a lot of evidence from the ground that shows that women respond much better and engage with financial services when they are trained or interacting with women banking correspondents. Uh, and yet, uh, India has not been able to build a strong network of uh, banking correspondents, uh, of women, that is, uh, because it's not been able to recruit and train enough of them and keep them in the workforce because the policy to recruit them has not been gender sensitive. It does not address the barriers that these women face when they work in villages as banking correspondents for inclusion, um, which could be anything. It could be uh, mobility, um, where they cannot really move between villages. It could also be low levels of digital and financial literacy because women are anyway deprived of it. Uh, It could also be lack of family support. So uh, the point that I'm trying to make with this is that um, as when, when we think about it, we have to begin by thinking of the barriers that exist um, and then ad- address the policy making to it. Yeah, I think policy making is really regulation is is, is what is going to drive a lot of a lot of change, I hope. And and Bruno, in the work that you do with with uh, incumbents and corporates uh, who are building financial services, um, I think we're looking to them uh, to to do a lot of this heavy lifting in in financial inclusion, I think Sunaya, you've mentioned uh, these correspondents in in Africa. They're, they're referred to as agents in, in an agency banking model. But Bruno, in 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 the work that you do, uh, what are corporates thinking right now? How are they approaching financial inclusion? What what are the next steps for for these people who want to these businesses who want to serve, uh, especially the last mile in in Brazil, for example? Nice, nice question. I think that. When you look at some uh, some corporates, and again, I'll, I'm a, a strong advocate of uh, embedded finance and, and things like that. But I would recall a case that I portrayed in my latest book was uh, there's a banking as a service company called Doc here, and they have a client which is a uh, cosmet- cosmetics retailer, uh, like door to door retailer. So basically, they have uh, women that work for them um, selling their their cosmet- cosmetics door to door in their community and things like that. 
What they did is they created an account so that the, those and a POS machine so that those women can receive money and also have an account to receive the proceeds of the sales and things like that. And and in some cases, uh, we say we we see people and women and that didn't even have any type of access to to a current account. Sometimes her husband has a, their account, but she didn't have the account herself. So that starts changing things. And what, another step that they took, which I think is was brilliant in terms of really, and that's bringing that is bringing like financial inclusion to another level, is that they. Uh, made a, a poll, a survey, and 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 asked the the the, the ladies uh, what would be like the number one dream in terms of financial thing that they would like, and the number one thing was like uh, I want to do a reform in my bathroom. That was the number one thing. And so what they did, they crafted a partnership with a construction. Um, uh, firm and 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 to have like a credit line specifically for those ladies, an affordable one for those ladies to reform their bathroom. So that's what I'm talking in terms of you know a deeper layer of financial inclusion of financial health. I would say so we can explore that later on. Uh, but I think that having this this ability to the empathy to understand a little bit more of the of, of the people you're serving and what type of you know layers of financial products not all, in, in in the end it's not only the product there is there is a need embedded in in it as well so there is something there it could be like i want to reform my bathroom and i i want to uh in terms of migrant workers i want to send money to my family back home you know it's it, there is the service but there is a a deeper need uh, attached to it. So I, I think that's At 11FS, we, we call that the jobs to be done framework. And and it's definitely something that, that every financial service provider should apply a bit bit more research and product thinking to what they build. All right, one last question for everyone. Um, so I'll, I'll, we'll go to all three of you. So what would your advice be to any potential fintech founder looking to address financial inclusion? Diana, let's start with you. Yeah, I mean, the first one is definitely evaluating what is the problem that you're customers or potential customers are facing. And uh, going off of that, you really have to focus. I think often people generalize and they take migrant workers as like one big chunk. Um, But depending on what their job is or depending on where they're from, um, their needs can be wildly different as well. When working with financial inclusion, uh, particularly in my space, uh, communities are incredibly important. Uh, So when we think of markets, we don't really think of like the countries where these people work, but we really think of the diasporas which these people are part of. So that's really, really important. Um, And then, of course, uh, financial education uh, goes hand in hand with financial inclusion. So I think if you're building a product uh, that is focused on including people who are otherwise not using uh, those financial services, you have to keep thinking, how can I educate those people uh, to be using those services um, in an efficient way that benefits them and also creates engagement for the product you're building. So it's kind of that like cyclical um, pattern, which perhaps is not always needed uh, when you're working with uh, demographics that are traditional users of, you know, existing banking systems. Sunaina? Uh, Diana actually covered everything that I really wanted to say. (laughs) I would just repeat uh, some of that, that literacy and education is very important and also uh, focus on women by first understanding uh, what inhibits them, what are the barriers uh, that they face and then what are the solutions that they need, which sounds like a bit of a no-brainer when I say it out like that. But imagine it's not. (laughs) A lot of of that is, I imagine, is, is, is ignored. Thank you for that. All right, Bruno, any advice? 
Yeah, nice. Uh, you know, just getting back to the the question about ditching or not the the financial inclusion term. I think that there's a lot lot of, of place to go in in this sense. But I would definitely ditch things like bank it, unbanked, and underbanked. You know, that's 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 the the, the thing. And uh, but looking looking back at um, at what can be done in in this sense in, in terms of uh, improving financial inclusion, I think fintechs and other non uh, you know, financial uh, providers would look at specifically what are the, the specific needs of their of their audience of their uh, you know uh, consumers. Uh, specifically, when you look at, for example, having just an, a, a current account, a checking account, is not enough for someone that really that their deep need is to send money abroad, like in the case of Diana, I think. So, trying to make this this thing easier. So, really understanding the needs of your of your audience is it's, it's important thing, and uh, you know, provide enough financial education so that they can do that, you know, in a conscious way, and 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 you know, understanding what they are doing in an affordable way, and. Uh, in in a seamless way, so that that would be the the, the point here. Awesome, thank you. Yes, Sunaya. Oh, I just wanted to jump in and say that uh, about what you said that uh, it should be a no brainer, but it isn't. Uh, I actually am. I just remember that I was in a conference two days ago, and there were at least ten fintech founders and and really amazing people doing lots of great work. But uh, the only people who were thinking about women were two women uh, whose work was focused on including women. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that I think that everybody who's working on this should be thinking about it. It should be a cross-cutting theme that is just a part of everyone's uh, work in this sector. I think it echoes, I think I heard a really great quote once, for, I think it was from uh, Emma Watson, I think who played Hermione Granger, I think that's the one. Um, I think that's her name. Uh, but she she described, she said, uh, let's get rid of the word feminist and instead call people who are not feminists douchebags. Uh, because, like, feminism should, like, you know, considering, um, you know, women and, and people who are uh, marginalized um, should be the, the default. Uh, but I love that. All right. Thank you so much. Um, so that wraps today's discussion. Thank you so much to all three of you for joining me. Where can we find out more about you and what you're working on? Bruno. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you can uh, find me at LinkedIn. I, I post a lot of things there, uh, Twitter as well, and Instagram. So Bruno E V Denise with a Z in the end. Uh, and if you type in LinkedIn Bruno Denise and FinTech, I think that that will be the only one that was going to pop up. Brilliant, uh, Diana. Uh, so for myself, also my LinkedIn, and uh, to learn anything about GPay, our new website goes live tomorrow. So do check that out. And uh, the app is on App Store and Play Store, available worldwide. Although at the moment, we do only serve Singaporean customers. Uh, Sunaina. For myself, uh, on Twitter, Sunaina underscore Kumar. And for the work that we are doing at the Observer Research Foundation, we have a website called orfonline.org. Brilliant. And as for me, you can find me at 11fs.com. I'm kind of afraid of LinkedIn, so I'm on Twitter mostly, at NotGuerra. Uh, thanks for listening. And if you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast. And don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps us make the show better and helps other people find it as well. As always, you can join in the conversation. You can find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcast at 11fs.com. Thanks you so much and goodbye. Goodbye.